Production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. I think if you could stand, if you could stand at the door of Florentino and look out onto Melbourne for those 90 years and flash it as a, as a fast forward, you would see a great evolving and changing city. Um, and again, it's not just the Italian culture that's influenced it so much, but uh, all other cultures and has, has influenced many aspects of, of what we do here today. Grossi Florentino, formerly the Florentino Cafe, has been a staple of the Melbourne community since the 1920s. Sitting in the heart of Melbourne's central business district, it has seen a vastly diversifying and evolving city. It stood at the forefront of educating the community about Italian customs and cuisines before a large post-World War II Italian immigration to the city. Since then, the cafe traded hands to the Grossi family, who has further expanded and diversified their influence in the community. Today, we sit with Guy Grossi, who educates us on Italian influence on local laws and policies, shares stories of success in family legacy, and shows us how circularly foreigners impact local cuisine while locals are influencing foreign cuisine. Stay with us as we learn how the past and the future of Melbourne is shaped by the Italians. Welcome to Culture and Cuisine, the podcast, season two, where we are creating conversations in the Melbourne community to show that everybody is from somewhere. Even the locals of today are shaped by the foreigners of the past. And with that, we can begin to understand and appreciate the diversity around us. I'm your host, Casey Hirschman. Sharing the table today is Guy Grossi, owner and chef of Grossi Florentino. Well, I'm Guy Grossi and um, I'm a restaurateur. Um, We're from a restaurant family that's been in Melbourne since 1960. And my In the Field co-host, Lila Fournier. Hi, I'm Lila Fournier and I'm the co-host today. Guy begins by telling us how his father wound up in Australia so many years ago. Um, My father was the first one that came to the country. Um, He left uh, my mother and his um, young daughter, my older sister, behind in Italy. And the reason why he came over was because a gentleman called Mario Vigano, who had a restaurant back then called Mario's, um, which was just around the corner in Exhibition Street, um, would go to Italy to find people to work in his restaurant, young chefs, young waiters, and my father was one that he recognised that he would have liked to come over, so he asked him to come over, and um, my father was very adventurous at the time, he was in his um, very early 30s, um, and he decided to give it, a, give it a plunge, but he wasn't sure if it was going to be a good enough place for his wife and daughter, so he left them behind to make sure, and they got separated for about seven months until he got a back over here because once he got here he saw that it was an amazing city um, and he loved it and so he said this is going to be our new home. Italian immigration to Australia was on the rise in the 1920s and 30s after fascism emerged in Italy and the states began cutting their immigration numbers. However, the city still wasn't ready for a full Italian immersion. Guy shares the anecdote of how Florentino got its name. Um, the, the restaurant here, Florentino, started in 1928 by uh, another 
Italian gentleman from Lucca, um, and he called it Florentino because Lucca's a town near Florence, so he, he decided to call it Florentino. And even in that, you can see um, it tells you a story of the day back in 1928. The word Florentino is not actually an English word and it's not an Italian word, it's actually a bastardised word. It's a word that says Florentino to make it sound Italian. These days you would, you would probably call it Fiorentino or the Florentine, but it's Florentino, which tells you it was trying to give an image of being Italian but something that the locals could easily pronounce back in 1928, so it would fit in. These days, of course, that's not the case because everybody's much more well-travelled and they understand cultural differences a lot more. Um, but, uh, you know, when the first round of immigration was coming through um, back in the 20s and so forth, it was, would have been a very different um, scene here in Melbourne. And through the stories that my father has told me, in 1960 it was a very different scene too. It's now, now you walk through the streets of Melbourne and you see cafes and tables and chairs out everywhere, people having a spritz uh, in, the, in, the early in the late afternoon or the early evening. Um, and you can see that the, that culture, not only the Italian culture, but that cultural spirit, spirit has really impermeated all walks of our, of our beautiful city and all walks of life. And, um, and Melbourne really is a multicultural city and um, I think it works really well. There's a few cities in the world where I think it works really well. I mean, if you, I've, I've travelled to New York many times and it's another great multicultural city where you can see influences from all over the world and there's many cities like that. Sydney's another great example as well. As Melbourne evolved and became more receptive to different cultures and ways of life, it also evolved its taste for different cuisines. Guy speaks to the evolution of Italian food in Melbourne. Italian food has evolved as well so much. Um, I mean, I remember even I can remember differences even when I first started as an apprentice and the sort of Italian food you would commonly find in restaurants and now it's a lot more sophisticated and you know you don't need to uh, embellish things so much you can you really it, it's more genuine it's more authentic in in many ways you know and and you can do that now because um, you know people really have come to to love and appreciate really good Italian food um, you know, and sometimes back in, in the olden days, we created dishes that were, you know, quasi-Italian that appealed to, you know, the palate. Um, and, and things like, you know, your veal parmigiana, not really an Italian dish, but it now is an Italian dish. And it's been created in, I believe that got created in, in America, but it, by the Italians in America, but then it filtered through to here. So it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting how it's evolved and how it's been twisting and shaping all through these years. So do you think nowadays people are looking for something maybe um, a little bit more simple and fresher? Fresher in a way like not too heavy? I think that food has definitely um, more refined and simple. Um, there's no, there's no, like, I think we went through a phase where things were becoming very complex and you can still have a complex dish, but it's, but simplicity is the key, I think. Genuine is the key. Um, if you have a beautiful ingredient and you worked with somebody to grow that ingredient and the last thing you want to do is disguise the flavor of that ingredient with too many things. I think you need that ingredient to shine through. Um, and I think in, in that is what you're saying, your point that you were making with your question. I think that lightness and simplicity is really a key for, for good cooking. Um, 
I like to think of our cooking as cooking from two territories. One is the territory that our parents left behind. So in other words, our fundamental background, our influences from our culture, um, the great authentic dishes of the past. Sorry, uh, where do you, where do you, where does your family come from? My father exactly? was from Puglia in the south of Italy and my mother was from the north, from Verona in the Veneto. So I've got a good cross, a bit of a minestrone. There's a good cross, cross mix of um, culture, of Italian culture. And that's an, another excellent question because Um, obviously, as you're aware, um, the, the cooking of Italy is very diverse all throughout the country. So you've got the northern style of cooking and the southern style of cooking. I was lucky enough to grow up with, you know, orecchietti um, with uh, cime di rape, which is very southern, and also gnocchi with gorgonzola sauce, which is very northern. So uh, I got the best of both worlds, you know. But um, so very lucky in that respect. And my mother was a brilliant cook and she used to cook for us all the time and cook dishes from her father's um, village as well. and from her hometown as well. Um, but yeah, those influences are still very strong in our cooking and the various outlets that we have, some are very authentic and we stick to those kind of dishes, like our cellar bar downstairs, it's very casalingo style and we, we stick to those authentic recipes. But the restaurant upstairs, we use those influences, but we also cook from the territory that we're in now. So the influences that we have from our wonderful farmers and growers and the influences from other chefs that are around. What kind of influences? Well, you know, influences like if we were talking about before, seasonal influences. Um, we were said before, if somebody's growing an amazing heirloom carrot, they have it for maybe a month, we'll use that. And then we move on to something else because we just have to move on to something else. Um, a, a great pork that's been grown beautifully and has been cared for all its life and fed well and looked after and it's only had one bad day in its life then that that's a beautiful creature so we, we look after it we respect that and that influences what we do and um, also you know just uh, we're keeping it fresh and simple and and you know keeping a modern outlook on some of the dishes so maybe taking a dish from the past and lightening it up a bit and using a, a more modern approach to it or thinking about how it can be presented in a different way to make it more elegant and make it more something of today. Uh, they're the sort of influences that we work with. So what ratio would you say would you use of like Australian locally produced um, produce, I guess, versus uh, having to go import get a distributor? Things. Yeah, import things. Well, Our ratio is very highly lean towards Australian produce, um, as local as we can manage it. Uh, having said that, if we find that, you know, my fish supplier tells me we've got some wonderful jewfish from Western Australia in this morning, well, we consider that local and we'll, we'll use that. Um, but we don't like to use um, seafood and fish from overseas, uh, from another country, because, oh, well, New Zealand are our cousins. We use a lot of produce from New Zealand and, and Tasmania as well. They, they have beautiful produce, but, but they're still Australian. Australian. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of jokes about that. Um, but um, no, they have wonderful produce there. They're beautiful cold water, pristine seafood comes from there, lovely scallops and mussels. Oysters from Tasmania and New Zealand. Um, we use a lot of Sydney rock oysters as well. But, you know, things, even things like our flour for making pasta, we use wonderful germ wheat flour, but I insist on using locally grown flour. It's Victorian flour that we use. Um, the reason for that is because 
we're supporting local farmers. We've got flour which is fresh because it's milled very as we need it, it's close by. Whereas if I was buying a good flour from Italy, um, it would be imported, but it would be on the shelf for months and months before I got it. And I believe flour needs to be lovely and fresh when you're using it for the pasta because there's nothing wrong with it as it ages, but it goes stale like anything else. Um, so all produce that we can get for um, from the local market is what we use. But then, you know, we have things, specialty things that we like to use as well, like a lovely prosciutto from San Daniele. I'm not going to deprive myself or my guests from ha having the flavor of a beautiful prosciutto from San Daniele because although we have great makers here that are making great prosciutto, there's something about the flavor of a slice of prosciutto from San Daniele that you can't reproduce, you know? And, and so that's, that's the sort of thing that we would import. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask that because I get there's some ingredients that you can't find here or it won't be the same, it won't be the same quality, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, maybe cheese as well, like do you use a lot of cheese from Italy, like we Parmesan? We do use Italian or? Parmigiano, we always use Italian Parmigiano. We use um, Grana and we also use Reggiano Parmigiano as well. And yeah, it's unfortunately that's something that we haven't really, it's, it's, it's great. Look, it's like we had a little project I did with a che local cheese maker. There's a cheese um, uh, that comes from Lazio that's called um, Cacciofiore, and the re that means cheese flour, Cacciofiore. And uh, the reason why this cheese is called, it's a sheep's cheese, um, sheep milk cheese, and the reason why it's called Cacciofiore is because they use the thistle, like the top of the artichoke, mm -hmm. to, um, to start the milk, to um, curdle the milk, to make it you know, into cheese. Um, and they, they come in little square forms like this, um, and it is an absolutely delicious cheese. And I, I tried to get it imported, it couldn't be done because it's also a raw milk cheese that they make it with. And, and I tried to look at if there was something similar here and there wasn't. So um, I did a little project with a local cheesemaker in Gippsland and they took it on and I showed them some research and they then went off and did a lot of research. And they came back, and to my surprise, they came beautiful little square forms, and it was so close to the original, but it was different. It had, it, like it should be different. It's from the flavour of Gippsland, not the flavour of Lazio, and it's different because the sheep eat different things, and it's different grass. So was it better, was it worse? I'm going to say it wasn't better or worse. It was the same, but it had our own, had our own twist to it. So they're looking at now to produce that in larger, not larger format, but in more quantity to see if they can make it one of their products. So that's a nice little story. It's a good story. Um, and I think the point I was making is that it's, you can't expect a, a, a Pinot Noir from Burgundy to taste like a Pinot Noir from New Zealand. That's going to be different because everything is different, but it's still the same thing, but very different because it reflects a completely different land and a completely different mindset. And you got the new world and the old world. And so it's it's miles apart. Yeah. Also, I wanted to ask because you were, we were talking about all those products from mm -hmm. um, different countries, Italy, um, Australia is really isolated and they have a lot of restrictions in terms of ingredients, food, um, even between a state to another. Um, is there sometimes do you struggle with some uh, products to be imported? Yeah, here? of course. There's some things that you that we couldn't get. Like we mentioned prosciutto, that's an interesting one because once upon a time there was no way you could get that here imported. But if you were say in 
Tokyo, you could, um, but here you couldn't because of restrictions. Now you can, so things are changing and evolving um, a lot. Small goods uh, like um, sal salumi, sal various, you ca cannot import them um, to this day. You still can't because of restrictions. There's, there's good and bad in all of that. One thing is there's nothing wrong with protecting what we have here. And what we have here is you say we're isolated, but that's that's kind of a weakness, but it's also a strength. You know, yeah, in it's that, because there's a unique yeah, biodiversity. That's here. right. That's correct. And if you go, like there's some places in Australia which are very, very strict, like, um, like places like um, Flinders Island and... Uh, Even Tasmania is very, very strict. Like, you cannot bring anything in there. If you go over from here to Perth, you can't carry fruit with you because it's they're protecting their environment that's there. Um, and that is a great thing because it protects the the natural order of what's going on. Um, and But, yeah, sometimes it poses a, not a struggle, but I would say a challenge. But out of every challenge there's a new opportunity that can be created. And this is why people have to start to think and you use your cultural background, like what would the, they have done if you couldn't do it? Well, you emulate it somehow or you grow it or you change something, you, you do something. Um, you know, the, in the old days, the Compati would carry, you know, some seeds in their suitcases. You know, you can't do that anymore. But, you know, um, you just make something happen. But look at all the beautiful produce that we now do grow that's locally grown that wouldn't have one day been we've got things like tuscan kale and beautiful rucola and oh the list is endless of, of the beautiful vegetables that we have where once upon a time you know an eggplant would have looked foreign um to to the people you know because they would never have seen it before yeah i think that's a beautiful kind of example of how uh immigrants shaped local produce local goods but also you know vice versa they're the Australian produce, everything is shaping now how some of the dishes you cook and things like that. And I guess kind of circling back to some of the historical influences, um, you know, what have you seen growing up? You said it's changed so rapidly in Melbourne. What are some of the, the things you've seen change throughout just your lifetime? Mm -hmm. um, well, some of the things we've mentioned, like the produce that is available, like um, it's it's mind-boggling what you can actually find now in in our markets. Like um, we've been growing like Italian varieties of zucchinis that you would never have seen before, like tromboncino zucchini. Um, all different types of eggplants have just started coming through, like little baby variegated eggplants, the the long Lebanese eggplants, um, things that are just so common now. You walk through a market. Market, heirloom tomatoes I mean my god look at the variety of tomatoes that we now have in our market once upon a time you know a tomato was a tomato we went through we had this wonderful plan of growing tomatoes and then for some reason because of ease and made uh, you know because of whatever reason a commercial reality turned tomatoes into one type of tomato everybody just bought a tomato a tomato was a tomato now people are actually starting to think no actually i'd like to have some black russian tomatoes or i'd like to have some zebra tomatoes or i'd love to have some you know some um uh, angus tomatoes i love that the mortgage lifter is a beautiful tomato um and that was created by a man who was a mechanic And uh, this is a, a this is a story. I'm not gonna. I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a story I got, and I'm gonna give you the story. Um, he was a mechanic in the 50s or 40s, and um, he wasn't doing very well, and so he started to plant tomatoes, and he developed this 
strain of tomatoes and he decided to name it and he called it the mortgage lifter because it helped pay the mortgage of his house. <laughs> so it's a good story, right? I'm going to stick to it. But, um, but you know, the other one is the ox heart. Oh, what a beautiful... We've got a dish on at the moment with ox heart tomatoes. Why wouldn't you? This is a season for tomatoes, right? Um, we did a festival um, uh, three, three years in a row called um, the Tomato Festival and it was to celebrate the harvest of the tomatoes and the Italian sauce making day where you you know bottle all the tomatoes when they're in their beautiful bounty in the season so you have the sauce um, through the winter months and so forth which is a wonderful tradition and again why do you have a festival like that around an ingredient it's because you want the the little people that are growing up to never forget and see and oh that's a cultural thing we don't need to press tomatoes you can just go and buy a bottle of sauce that's fine but how nice is it to be actually experience that with people that all come together and have that celebration because while you're making the tomato you're having a little glass of wine you're having a conversation you're talking about stories you're talking about other cultures as well because people from other cultures want to join in so they say what they do in their culture and all of a sudden you've got this lovely spread and through this lovely spread you are breaking down barriers because your people get worried about things that they don't understand but when you start to understand diversity and cultural diversity the fear lifts you're not worried or scared anymore because you know usually people become a little bit abrasive because they don't know and understand but once you understand the culture you're not worried about it anymore because you get it right yeah that's exactly what culture and cuisine is about because like you said you know everyone can understand a family gathering to keep a tradition alive that's you know, every culture has that yeah. in some form or another. And mm. once you understand some of those traditions and why people do them, you it's hard to have animosity towards another, I'd Correct. say. So mm. that's awesome. After we finished discussing the evolution of Melbourne's taste for Italian and the produce and dishes of today, we turn our attention to the current Grossi family establishments. Well, we have the Florentino, which has three venues. So we've got the upstairs restaurant, which is the more luxurious part of what we do. Um, we have the cellar bar, which I mentioned, which is kind of our bar. It's open all day long and it's very different, more casual, more relaxed. And we've got the grill, which focuses on really, you know, good um, meats and on the grill and obviously pasta dishes with nice, refined, authentic pasta dishes, things like that. It's quite a fast paced restaurant. Um, and then, you know, you're sort of very lucky as a chef because you're able to express yourself in many different ways from very elegant to very simple and casual, which I really love. But then, you know, you sort of get a, a feeling to do other things. So we opened Merchant, which was uh, which is an Osteria and it's, a, it's done in the style of a Veneto Osteria, which is where my mother's from, from Verona. So we wanted to do that and we did that. That was a nice, successful project and it's a beautiful restaurant. And we did a little salumi bar, Ombra, next door, um, which is, uh, an, again, probably a little bit more on the northern Italian side of things. We do a nice pizza in there. We wanted to do a pizza, and we wanted to take it very seriously, so we, we developed our dough. It's a 48-hour fermented dough, so it's really nice and developed. It's a beautiful, beautiful pizza that we do, and we do little cicchetti and salumi and all of that, so it's all about the, the theme of that is about... Um, it's very relaxed, very casual, very low-key, but it's all about the preserved thing 
you know, beautiful sottocetto, sottoglio, um, you know, lovely antipasto things, cicchetti and other um, sort of um, more bigger dishes as well. I have, we do, you know, sometimes might do a, a lamb's belly or a braised lamb neck or shoulder or something like that, which I really love braised dishes, especially when the cooler months come. I think it's great. So um, I guess it's just uh, things, projects that we've wanted to do to keep things exciting. Um, you know, like um, we just released a Salabar cookbook, um, which was uh, another great project. I worked with uh, my son Carlo on that and my brother-in-law Chris, who works with me in the kitchen upstairs. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we just like to do uh, different things to keep it, keep it exciting. And in terms of dishes, um, I guess you say that nowadays people travel more, which is true, especially Australians, they, they travel a lot. They seem to be everywhere, don't they? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm from France, from the south, so for me it's... Uh, I know a lot about Italian food, I guess, because we really we are inspired from that. Mm -hmm. um, but for some Australians, there's, they still don't know everything about it so how how do you inform or educate your customers to some of your products or some of your dishes well or we even wines in the cellar bar well uh, what we we do I, I don't think we I don't look at ourselves as necessarily educators I think we need to look after our guests and treat them with respect and try and show them something that you know, we've done with love. Um, and if we have an ingredient which is a little unusual, well, we try and first of all inform our team and make sure they understand it. That's the key, to make sure our team understands um, what the ingredient is and how, where its history, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that's not so commonplace, but let's just say maybe Botarga, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a sun-dried mullet row, which is, um, probably typically Sardinian, although they do it in Sicily as well, but it's Sardinia is probably his real birthplace. Um, we make it ourselves sometimes now. Um, the mullet row is a beautiful thing. Um, and also there's production of it here in Australia as well. So we buy some as well if we want to. But it's quite has quite a particular taste. So you can it's quite dry and you can slice it and serve it as a little antipasto with some oil, or you can whip it and pipe it into something. Um, so that one is, as an example, of something that's a little bit more unusual to the palate. Some people might love it straight away if they understand it. If we're the, you know, our team is educated on the enough to be able to portray what it is. Some people may not like it, or some people may try it and then warm to it, you know, a little bit more. Um, and that's just how it has to roll. And then you find that if you do use things like that. Um, you know sometimes you know my chefs will say oh why cook tripe nobody nobody orders it anyway but in actual fact if you cook it and then you have it there somebody will order it and then they'll go oh they do a great tripe there and people that like that might say well let's go and try it because it's good so and know. also it's another trick in this it's another way of trying with the customers what they would like and if it fails well it fails and then you can try something else that's right Besides, I'm lucky. I like tripe, so if they don't order it, I just eat it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love it. Um, do you have any like childhood foods or like very traditional foods that you have recreated and tried to 
Yeah, well, you know, very traditional. We go straight to the traditional. The lasagna we serve in the cellar bar is my mum's recipe. It's the way we we ate it growing up. So we try and keep it the same and never change it. Um, you know, but then there's things like um, my mother always on Good Friday would do um, uh, a ragu with calamari um, and she'd serve with fettuccine, handmade fettuccine. And the ragu calamari, she wouldn't put the ink in it, but she'd make it red. So it was a lovely, rich red ragu made with really slowly cooked calamari all the tentacles and all the bodies in there and everything and it's just delicious so we do a version of that from time to time and we lighten it up a bit so we make it a little bit more light and and you know more more gentle more elegant um but i still love my mum's version and these days on good fridays i do the cooking so i cook it and she'll always like look at it taste it she goes yeah it's good good. (laughs) thanks thanks Grossi Florentino is a family establishment and always has been. Guy works alongside his brother-in-law, daughter, and other family members to continue the success of the restaurant. We asked Guy if all of his primary staff are family. Well, we have a big team, so there's a lot of people that we have, um, and we have a lot of people that have been with us for um, 15 years, 10 years um there's a couple that have have nearly reaching there's one that's past 20 years um anyway so we but we do we are a family business um my wife's involved in the business my son is involved my daughter um who you've met loredana um uh liz my sister is my business partner as 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 chris in the kitchen as well so you know there's quite a few of us that are that are family and there's some members that were all of our team we consider our extended family, but there are some members of our team that have been with us for quite a long time that we consider very close and are like family. In fact, it's not it's not foreign to find them at one of our Sunday lunches with family. You'll find a couple of them scattered in there because they've joined us or whatever. So it's, it's one of those things that is built. I think we've been very lucky. We have some really good people and, um, you know, there's also people that come and go, but that's the nature of it and that's fine. Um, and there's some people that are with us for, you know, they stay for five or six years and then they go off and do something exciting and that's great too. And it makes me very proud to see, you know, when they've gone off and done, you know, a, something for themselves. Nice. Yeah. What do you think has led to kind of that success? Because I know hospitality is very hard to keep staff mm-hmm. for a long time. And then, you know, having generationally y'all have kept um, this place and spirit alive what do you think has contributed to um that? i think um i'm gonna just say my father's greatest influence on me as a chef was his work ethic um just be present work hard and and be passionate about what you do i know it's a word that gets used a lot you know this word passion and gets um sort of thrown around here and there but you know, in its genuine form, it is actually um, it's actually what drives the spirit of any business. I think it's not just hospitality. If you you know, what is, some very smart man or woman I don't know who said, if you find something, if you find work you love to do, you'll never work another day in your life because you just that's what you love to do. So you you're enjoying it all the time. And I think if you have that attitude and and you, you gather good people around you, then that that hopefully rubs off, that energy and that passion rubs off and then you find that people are doing the same thing around you and and behaving the same way, which is good. Melbourneian folklore speaks about the spaghetti mafia. 
a group of some of the original Italian restaurant owners who would meet for lunch every day and pave the way for Italian dining as well as reformed food and beverage licensing in the city. Guy shares his knowledge of the elite group of men. It's a term that used to be used, it was used um, many years ago, um, and it was a group of Italian restaurateurs that uh, would coin that. They, they were probably amongst, it, it was around those times I would talk about Mario's and you had the Society and you had the Latin and you had Florentino. Um, so there were a few Italian restaurateurs that, that used to gather every now and then and they'd call, coin, coin that expression, that term. Um, but I don't know if they were into any activities right. so. <laughs> but uh but um they certainly ran um popular restaurants and um and sure you know they would have been doing things that certainly um led the way in terms of hospitality and looking after guests and you know creating that caring environment for um restaurants modern restaurants now i mean it's like um you know, if we wouldn't have had Beethoven, we would never had the Beatles, you know, it's like, yeah. like that. So it's just an evolution. Yeah, because I heard they're like back in the day, Melbourne had some really strict laws about times you could serve food. It, and it's alcohol. true. It's true. It was very antiquated. Um, and it was like that when my father got here, it was uh, they still, um, you know, the pubs closed at six. Um, and, um, you know, restaurants generally close no later than 8 o'clock at night. Um, so, yeah, it was just the, the different licensing laws. Licensing laws contributed a lot to that, um, and obviously they've been opened up a great deal, and thank God now Melbourne's almost a 24-hour... Well, it is a 24-hour city now, and you can get things any time of the day. Um, but um, yeah, it was very different. They had a, a, a common uh, practice that was referred to as the... Um, as the six o'clock swill, which was uh, when all the men finished work, they would go to the pub at five o'clock and they would drink as hard as they could till six when they got thrown out and then go home to their families um, intoxicated. But the, the whole idea was that you were meant to be at home with your families after six, not, not at the pubs. That's why pubs close at six. So there was some kind of... Uh, thinking behind it, obviously not too clearly, but um, but uh, that was the thing. So rather than go home at eight, you'd go home at six, smashed, you know. Um, but yeah, all sorts of all sorts of stories. But they were they were certainly different times, and um, you know we've evolved um, greatly in I guess a short amount of time. But we've also had uh, the fortune of being you know picking up from you know great European cities and. You know, following that culture, um, and you know, obviously, the states has been a great influence on what's happened here as well. Um, just, just influences from everywhere that, that has evolved that and opened up the mind as well. Mm. When you're in your country, there's always one moment when you feel you're an immigrant. Um, was it hard, or do you know if your father told you if it was hard for him sometimes to fit in, like? people in in Australia where they were coming with uh, Italian at first well um, multiculturalism as I said before it's it's a it, we do it well here in Melbourne I think but as in every situation there's always some negativity as well so um, the simple answer to that is that of course there were challenges um, especially you know when you come into a country and you're kind of mixing in a low demographic dad came with not much money no money virtually so he was a, a true immigrant 
he had to work hard to try and save to buy a house. Um, so obviously um, you, you do f face those challenges. When I first went to school, I was four and a half years old. Um, I didn't speak a word of English because at home we spoke Italian only. Um, I didn't feel like an immigrant because I was born here. Um, so I'm first generation. Um, but, uh, but certainly when I went to school, um, I found it quite difficult at first. I just learned to run very fast. That's also <laughs> got myself out of trouble. <laughs> I had I, I had an accent. I did not have an Aussie. Now I've got an Aussie accent. So when I go overseas, people know I'm from Australia. When I, even if I'm speaking Italian, but um, but uh, but when I first went to school, I just couldn't speak English. I could only speak Italian, and I I just learnt by you know by osmosis, I guess, and, and just by being at school. Um, but it was quite. It, it, there was moments where it was quite difficult. Yep. Not only for Italians, I mean, other cultures felt it too, um, but... And it's still for some. And it's still maybe for some, absolutely, and there's still... There will always be ignorant people in society, always, but it's up to the more enlightened people to try and show them the way. And you can't show them the way through brutality, it has to be through cultural awareness. That's how it has to happen, and and as you are probably aware, um, that, that, that is the only way forward. Yeah, conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing that we're all That's the greatest similar. tool. That's the biggest <laughs> weapon, showing yeah. people the truth about how things really are. And when somebody's, when somebody's actually been to the south of France and drunk rosé, you know, they will never criticise it again, would they? Because it's just a beautiful place to be. And until you understand that, then you might think, oh, I want to go there. But that's what it is. Yeah, but there's definitely some countries who fascinate more people here than some others, I guess. But as you said, it's a question of um, open your arms and just show your culture through uh, different ways, like traditions, cuisine, mm. or cultural events, whatever. Events, stories, music, cinema, cinema, yeah, food. Mm. Wine, that's what it's all about. And nowadays there's so many Italians here and there's a lot of Italian places. Um, what's your secret, even though you can't really reveal it, but what's your secret to, uh, to keep it, like to keep the business and just like to stay authentic? And I think just to keep on what we were talking about before, keep on going. Um, there's reinvention, uh, you know, you never stand still. You can't just say, oh, we're good and, you know, Yesterday I was in with my wife painting something and, you know, on Sunday I was here, we were downstairs doing some cleaning, you know, you just reinvent and, oh, there's a new, let's do something with the menu, let's change it, there's new dishes coming in seasonally, keep it moving and evolving, I think, and, and just, I think that does a couple of things. One, it keeps it fresh for your guests, but two, it keeps it fresh for yourself as well and the team. And I think if you keep things fresh for your own team, they're more inspired, which translates to the guests and then the guests go oh this is a lovely energetic place so come back I want to come back to that place I think but I don't know I don't really know <laughs> jury's still out we wait and see we transition into what Guy sees for the future of the restaurant he shares that his family has decided to focus on refining and improving the current ventures they are part of as well as maintaining a recent addition called Garium located in the Hibernian place in Perth which is based on ancient and modern Roman cooking techniques. 
Guy discusses the produce they use at that location in an effort to stay as local as possible. All local, all local produce we use from Perth, apart from the things that I said to you before, like, you know, we might import have prosciutto that comes from Italy or parmigiano that comes from Italy, um, gorgonzola, taleggio, but um, as, and we use some local cheeses too, they're good, don't get me wrong, but, um, but uh, we like to have that influence in our, in our menus because that gives us a bit of a stamp of who we are as well. Um, it gets sort of like our passport, that's, we're Italian, it says that. Um, uh, it sends a, a bit of a message, but you know, you, the produce over in Perth is a Margaret River produce and produce from up north. It is just A1. I've got to tell you, the fish from over there is crazy good. Have you guys been over there to no. Perth? It's just, it's amazing. Not, not that here is not. It's beautiful as well. But Because but they just, have uh, good productions over there? Yeah, they do. Great farmers, great produce. It's beautiful. So why would you not work with the produce? You know what I mean? You'd be crazy not to. And if you're a restaurant in France or a restaurant in Italy and you weren't using the cheesemaker down the road or the guy who grows tomatoes down the road, you'd, people would say, why? Why wouldn't you use it? It's just there. Of course you're going to use it. So... I think if you if you if you do that, that helps create food hubs as well. C creating a, a local marketplace, a local food hub, that helps culturally incredibly as well. It's very good to do that. So it, the whole circle is sustaining itself, which is good. We turn the conversation to some of the dishes they have featured for the current Australian summer. Well, in summer, we have lovely things like we mentioned the tomato. We're doing this wonderful dish with, um, we get an ox heart tomato and we slowly cook it for about three hours in the oven, very low heat. So it just sort of dries and whittles a little bit. And we make, we take mozzarella, beautiful um, fresh mozzarella and make a little sauce with the mozzarella. We have a little olive crumble on that and it has some balsamic in it as well it's a lovely little dish so things like that fresh dishes um, downstairs we're doing a dish with trofie with um, pesto um, so basil is at its best right now um, we've got another dish um, in the cellar bar called um, uh, we've got uh, macaroni with pesto trapanese which is uh, another type of pesto from Sicily it comes from a place well trapani but it comes from Nubia the town of Nubia which is very famous for growing red garlic um, we don't use their garlic we use local garlic but um, and it's a pesto made with tomatoes garlic um, almonds and uh, parsley and a little bit of basil and it's it's very delicious as well and very fresh very very fresh. summery yeah. <laughs> so it comes out like in the summer when the garlic is just you know when the new season of the garlic comes out um, and um, you know things things like that of course you know you the stone fruits we're doing a lot with stone fruits because of it's it, the season is now so so we like the the season to tell us what it, we should be putting on the menu that's how we that's how we do it you know cherries are abundant at the moment we're doing um, you know we're using cherries on a pig dish that we have um, so you know we uh, on a on a pork dish, we're using the cherries, but we do use them in dessert as well. They're beautiful. Um, the other day, uh, a friend of mine, Oliver from Romaro Farm, brought these tiny little um, wild strawberries that he was that he's been growing, um, and they're just delicious. So we did a, a dessert with them, and um, and I also did um, uh, a little risotto with them as well. So that was a really nice dish too. With vegetarianism and veganism on the rise. We asked Guy how they cater to that as an Italian restaurant. 
Well, like the dish I just described, you tomato dish is a vegetarian dish. It's not a vegan dish, obviously, but um, but we do we do do cater for that as well. So you know, we do a tasting menu um, for our for our guests, but we also have a vegetarian option that can be that can be done with that, and we can turn that into a vegan option as well. So we do have a, a fair bit of. Um, you know, time that we put into that because obviously it's something that um, you know is in our, in our on our radar. It's, it's something that is on the rise, and you know you have to be in it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess vegetarian is pretty easy. Uh, vegan must be more complicated mm-hmm. in terms Absolutely. of. Absolutely, well, it's more say. restrictive. So yeah, yeah you, you sort of. In terms of cream and cheese. Yeah, yeah and, it eliminates yeah. a lot more ingredients. Yeah. yeah, is that is that hard for? Well, it's Italian? a challenge to keep it keep it. You're trying to. You want to make something interesting as well. That you know, the last thing you want is a guest to be sitting there and thinking they're getting the second rate just because they're a vegan. So you want to try and, so you try and spark things up a little bit. But it is. It's a challenge. It's just another challenge that you have to deal with. So my last question was. um, I know you're gonna think it's hard, but what's your favorite dish at the moment? Mm -hmm. If you had to choose. My my (laughs) usual answer to that is. my dishes are like my children. I know which one I love the most, but I can't really say. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so great. No, as I said before, I, I, I love everything we do. Some moments I like thing, I like this dish the best, and sometimes I like this dish. One dish that we're doing at the moment, which I really do like, is um, there's some beautiful um, king prawns that we're getting, some really lovely um, large king prawns. Um, and we make this delicious um, sauce um, out of the um, shells. Um, we, it's, we try and keep it nice and light. It's um, and and it, we, it's like a, I'm going to say it's like a bisque, but it's not really a bisque. But it's it's like just a little tomatoey um, prawn sauce. Um, and we really we shell the prawns. We really, really lightly cook them and put a pancetta um, crumble over the top of them and serve them with a tropea onion, which is a type of onion that um, our farmer grows for us. Um, and it's really just a beautiful, fresh, fragrant, lovely dish that shows off some really wonderful Australian produce. And I, I'm really enjoying that one at the moment because of it's here and now. You know? yeah. That seems delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you said, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, well, um, that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure sitting and learning from you and really acknowledge you for what you've created here and um it's it's really inspiring thank you casey thank you very much and it's uh it's lovely that you've thought of us to come and talk to us and i've I've actually learned a lot just by our conversations um that we've had today so thanks very much for the opportunity thank you Production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. 